Well, if you haven't opened your Bibles, please do so to Exodus 1. And the title of my message this morning is Experiences Can Be Deceiving. And I wonder, what do you do when there is a gap between your faith and your experiences? Like there's a gap, meaning it doesn't seem like those promises that you've put your faith in are applying to you. That, that it seems like God's power and his presence are somewhat distant. I wonder, does it ever feel like it would be easier if you just sort of let go of this thing called faith? To, to, to kind of relieve the tension of having to exist between what God's word and promises declare and then the pain of your own circumstances. Can we be honest? Sometimes faith is exhausting. Sometimes holding on to, to hope and trust when everything around you is telling you otherwise, that, that, that can put you in the fetal position sometimes. Am I the only one that feels that way? <laughs> what do you do in the midst of that? Man, so often the enemy, so often suffering and trial, so often the weakness and sin of our own heart just pound at us and pound at us and pound at us, trying to weaken our faith, and so often we can lose perspective. So what do we do? How do we, how do we stand strong in faith? Well, if you're here this morning and you would say, yeah, I'm weak. I'm feeling weak and worn out. I feel like my sin and my struggles have the best of me, suffering and trial, they, they got me. Well, I want to tell you a story. I want to tell you a story about a very blessed people. These people were so blessed because at one time God came to their forefathers and said, I am going to give you a great many descendants. I'm going to take those descendants, I'm going to make them a nation, and I'm going to give them a land to call home. And this happened. From this one man, more descendants came, and this family began to grow and grow. And they began to accumulate wealth and possessions and became strong. They were blessed by God. But, as with any family, plenty of drama, plenty of mess. Husbands fighting with wives, siblings fighting with each other, parents showing favoritism, the, the odd sort of dynamic of everyone having the same dad but a different mom, Messy stuff. But in the midst of all that, God continued to bless. But there was this one particular moment when the sibling rivalry got pretty out of control. A group of older brothers decided they were going to sell their younger brother into slavery. You know, plan A was to kill him, so I mean, maybe we give them a little bit of credit that they decided just to go the slavery route. But something funny happened. This younger brother, sold into slavery, eventually put into prison for something he didn't do, becomes the second most powerful person in the biggest and most powerful empire in the world, from slave to second in command. You see, no matter how messy and, and dysfunctional this family got, God was continuing to bless this family, and he leveled up one of them to the second most powerful position on earth. And this younger brother, Joseph, from this place of power, was able to save not only the nation of Egypt, from starvation and famine, but people from all over the world. God raised him up to save many. Well, eventually Joseph's family joins him in Egypt. His father Jacob and his brothers and his, their wives and their kids all come, as Genesis and Exodus tell us, 70 people total come to Egypt and they settle in Egypt with a very privileged and blessed place because of Joseph. 
They're given a a spot of land to to grow and they continue to thrive. And so Jacob dies and Joseph dies and his brothers and their wives die and a generation passes and Israel continues to multiply. That that promise God gave them way back that he was going to give them numerous descendants, it was happening. Well, our story sort of changes gears because a pharaoh, a king of Egypt, comes to power that did not honor and did not know Joseph. And that welcome and that privilege and that blessing that Israel experienced in Egypt, it was removed. Pharaoh decided, no, you all are a threat. You're too big, too powerful, too numerous. If you join our enemies, you can overthrow us. And so we need to stop you from growing. In fact, we need to decrease the number. There's too many of you. And so we need to do something about that. And so just like that, Israel moves from a place of blessing to slavery They're thrown into a harsh world where they have to do back-breaking labor, making bricks and working in the field, the kind of labor that makes you hate your life, makes you become bitter and angry. And I imagine Pharaoh probably thought this, surely these circumstances are going to show these Israelites that the, the promise and the blessing and the care of their God is gone. Surely these circumstances would show that the power and the might of Egypt had stamped out any notion of God's care. In fact, it probably was going to show this whole idea of blessing and promise, it wasn't even a real thing to begin with. You all just had a run of luck for a number of generations. Well, your luck has run out. Circumstances have changed. But a funny thing happens. The more Pharaoh oppresses, the more Egypt oppresses Israel, the more they grow. The harder the work, the more they multiply. What was intended to crush their spirit and bring them into this place where they they wouldn't even think about starting and raising families because the work was so hard, that that situation actually injected jet fuel into God's promise and blessing and care. Not what Pharaoh and Egypt were expecting. But Pharaoh's undeterred. Slavery's not getting the job done, so he's going to take a more direct reproach. So he orders the managers of the Hebrew midwives, Shifra and Pua, to come and say, hey, here's what you're going to do. Every time there is a Hebrew baby boy born, you're going to kill it. And so Pharaoh was not going to rely on slave labor to slowly kill out the Israelites. He was going to go for a quiet genocide. He was going to recruit the Hebrew midwives to sort of kill those babies and give the impression, oh, these babies are just dying at birth, don't know what's going on, but these boys just keep dying. Surely this would show that the promise and the blessing and the care of God had been removed. He was going to turn Israelite against Israelite, the blessed family turning on itself. Surely this would show that this whole notion of God's promise and care was gone. By his decree, Pharaoh would show who's in charge and who's in control. But again, funny thing happens. These midwives, they fear God. And they do not listen to the king. And they let the boys live. They decide, we're going to fear God and trust his power, not the power of Pharaoh. Well, we're going to defy the most powerful ruler in the world because we fear God above everything else. And so Pharaoh eventually discovers, hey, I'm not being listened to. I gave an order, and it's not following through. And so he angrily calls Shifra and Pua before him and says, why have you done this? Why are the babies still alive? Why are you allowing them to live? And if you can imagine being Shifra and Pua, 
Hebrew midwives, slaves, before the most powerful ruler, the man who holds life and death in his hands. They had just defied the king, and so they know their answer could be the difference between their life and their death. And the answer they give is classic. Well, you see, Mr. Pharaoh, the Hebrew women, they're just built different. They don't take their time and labor. They just push, 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 and the baby comes before we could even get there. Sorry, Mr. Pharaoh, nothing we could do. Now, was this the case? Don't know. What were the midwives conspiring with the Hebrew mothers to, oh man, we're going to get there just after your baby boys are born. Sorry. Was there a conspiracy going on? Who knows? Here's what we do know. They feared God more than they feared Pharaoh. They put their trust in the power of God more than fearing the power of Pharaoh. And what happens? Israel continues to multiply and grow and cover the land. More blessing, more growth. And then God even gives the midwives themselves families as a way to bless them. What Pharaoh intended to be a genocidal end to the Hebrew population resulted in them becoming even more blessed. Jet fuel on the blessing. More promise, more care. Not what Pharaoh, not what Egypt was expecting. But Pharaoh still was undeterred. His order and his attempt to recruit the Israelites into his plot didn't work, and so he was going to take a more direct approach. Gloves were coming off. He was going to order his people to throw these baby boys into the Nile. Now, the Nile was just more than a convenient place to drown someone and stash their body. The Nile was a god to the Egyptians. It was the source of life and death. And so for the Egyptians to throw these Hebrew baby boys into the Nile was to invoke the judgment of their God on the people of Israel. They intended to exercise their faith, as it were, and see that the Nile God bring judgment and defeat Israel. They were going to show our Nile God is going to bring you down and defeat you. Our Nile God is greater than any promise, blessing, or care of your God. But here's where our story gets even more curious. And so we kind of focus in on a particular family. Husband and wife from the tribe of Levi. Levi was the third oldest son of Jacob. And this husband and wife have a baby boy, which we know this is a death sentence for this child. But they feared God and not Pharaoh. And so they hide this baby boy for three months until baby boy is probably a little bit too mobile and a little bit too vocal. And so they have to do something else with him. And so his mom makes a basket, and, he, and she puts this baby boy in a reed basket, a tevah in Hebrew. And she sets this basket amongst the reeds in the waters on the banks of the Nile. Now the word tevah shows up in one other place in Scripture, Genesis 6. In Genesis 6, God commands Noah, make a tavah, an ark, in which your, your, you, your family, and the animals will be carried to safety, safety over the destructive floodwaters. A tavah is a vessel of rescue. And so in that tavah, sitting in the reeds, in the water on the banks of the Nile, the very water that was intended to be this baby boy's death becomes his means of rescue and safety. But among those reeds, this baby is found. 
And who happens to find this baby boy? The daughter of Pharaoh. Someone in the very household of the one who gave the command that this baby boy should be killed. Probably the worst person on earth next to Pharaoh to find this baby boy. Surely Pharaoh's daughter would keep her father's command. Surely Pharaoh's daughter understood the political implications of Israel continuing to grow. They could overthrow her father, and usually wars like that, the royal family doesn't survive. She had every reason in the world to end this baby boy's life. But what does she do? She looks at him and says that she has pity on him. Compassion. She feels sorry for him. And rather than drowning him, she saves him. This isn't the Hebrew wives defying the order of Pharaoh to save their own. This is Pharaoh's daughter defying his order. And then suddenly, the, the moment is interrupted by the voice of a little girl. Do you want me to go get one of the Hebrew moms who are nursing to nurse this baby boy for you? And Pharaoh's daughter says, yes, go. You see, this baby boy's sister had been watching him the whole time keeping an eye on him, seeing what was going to happen. And when she sees that Pharaoh rescues this boy, she springs into action and comes up with a brilliant plan. She goes and gets their mother to come and nurse her brother. And then Pharaoh's daughter pays this baby boy's mother to nurse her own son. I mean, this little girl would make an incredible corporate negotiator. <laughs> Getting someone wealthy to pay you to raise your own kid. <laughs> Brilliant. But eventually, they have to turn this baby boy back over to Pharaoh's daughter. After a time, he goes back. But don't miss this. A Hebrew boy whose death sentence was decreed by Pharaoh was now going to be raised in Pharaoh's house. And she... Pharaoh's daughter gives this boy a name, Moses. And as we are going to see in the next few weeks, Moses wasn't just some random Hebrew boy who happened to be rescued by an Egyptian princess. No, he would become the leader and the deliverer that God would use to rescue Israel once and for all from slavery to Egypt. You see what Pharaoh intended to, to, to be the genocide of Israel led to Israel's very deliverer being raised in his own house. What, what Pharaoh intended to crush and destroy and end Israel planted the seeds of Egypt's own downfall in his own house. You see, no matter how dark and dire it gets, <laughs> no matter how circumstances screamed at Israel that the promise and the blessing and the care of God had been removed. Here's what this text tells us. That God's people are never outside his care and never sight out his rescue. That the very plan of Pharaoh backfired. And in that backfire we see God's people are never outside of his care, never outside of his rescue. And like the Israelites in the story, the Israelites who would have first heard the story were a people in a dire 
and difficult situation. Yes, they had been rescued from Egypt, but they were now wandering in the wilderness. They were now facing the hardship of harsh elements, fearing starvation and dehydration, walking about where they were surrounded by nations who hated them and weren't too keen on them passing through their land. They were questioning and doubting, where are we going? Is there any, really any such thing called the promised land? Is this real? Like they had the markers of God's presence and his blessing and his promise. And yet it seemed like their circumstances were saying this, God doesn't care. God isn't listening. You are abandoned. And Israel, their hearts full of sin and weakness, begin to listen to these lies. And by listening to these lies, they begin to tell themselves, you know what? We should go back. We should go back to Egypt. You know, there it was more comfortable and there was food. Oh, it better to live in slavery in Egypt than walk by faith in the wilderness. They convinced themselves that going back was better because their circumstances had allowed them to believe that God's promise and blessing and care had been removed. So to be reminded of God's faithfulness, Moses takes them back to another time when circumstances seemed dire. Harsh slavery? The threat of genocide? Hey, where do you think God was in all of that? And, and here's really the brilliance in many ways of Exodus 1 and 2. Do you notice that in the passages that we read this morning, that God isn't really directly talked about except for a few spots. He's talked about that the midwives feared him and that he blessed the midwives. That's the only direct mention of God. And this is the literary brilliance of biblical narrative written to give the impression of the experience, to give this sense of how Israel was experienced this. Where is God in the midst of all of this? And yes, God bursts on the scene in chapter three. His presence becomes directly known. He said, I'm gonna rescue. I'm gonna make my glory and my presence directly known. You're gonna know that I am the Lord. But up to that point, God hasn't been absent. He has not been absent. He has not been gone. He has not been waned in his promise and his blessing and his care for Israel. No, he's been there all along, orchestrating their care, their blessing, orchestrating his faithfulness to his promise. See, friends, experiences can be deceiving. Experiences can cause you to believe that God is no longer following through on his promises. But friends, we need to be reminded God's people are never outside his care, never outside his rescue. So let's be honest. <laughs> let's be honest about something. You know, contrary to what you and I may think, contrary to what we may have heard or been told, following the Lord, being a Christian, does not make your life easier. Does not make life, in a lot of ways, make more sense. Look, there are a lot of reasons to believe in God, just generally. There are religious reasons, there are moral and philosophical reasons, there are scientific reasons, historical reasons, lots of reasons to intellectually believe in God. But to have faith, where you put your hope and your trust in God, that makes things more difficult in some ways. That thing makes things more complicated in some ways. 
Because as Hebrews 11 tells us, to have faith means to put your hope and your trust in things you can't see or fully understand. It means being able to live through experiences without explanations. To hold on to hope and trust when all your circumstances seem to be telling you that God's power and his promise and his presence have been stifled and stamped out in your life. And look, it's one thing to have someone try to intellectually argue against the belief in God, where they sit down and try to point, poke holes in the Bible or poke holes in history or whatever and sort of intellectually convince you that God doesn't exist. That's one thing. It's an entire other thing when your circumstances are telling you God has abandoned you. God isn't faithful. That, that, that cuts deeper in many ways. That's a harder argument sometimes to overcome. That is, the, the, those are words that we so often listen to. And because we have weak and sinful hearts too, just as Israel did, we're prone to listen to lies. How oh, we're prone to listen to the lies of the enemy. We're prone to listen to those who may disagree or oppose our faith. We're opposed to listen to our own hearts. And here's what it sounds like. This faith, this faith thing, it ain't working, is it? It ain't really making anything better, is it? It's not, it's not really panning out the way that you thought it would. Why don't you come back to where things were a little bit more comfortable? Why don't you come back to where things were a little bit more easy, where things made a little bit more sense? You know, you don't have to hang out with those backward and bigoted people anymore. Now you can come over here and come back over here. Well, guess what? You can have things your way. No one is ever going to question your pursuit of happiness. Ever heard things like that? Ever heard that here as much as you hear it out there? Have you ever been tempted to follow through? Look, friends, so often it is easy for us to believe the lie better to live in slavery in Egypt than walk by faith in the wilderness. Far, far too easy. Friends, experiences are deceiving. And if we are going to break the spell of those lies, we have to be reminded of God's faithfulness. We have to be reminded that God's people are never outside of his care, never outside of his rescue. And this is what Exodus points us to. Exodus shows us that no matter how dire the situation, no matter how dark it may seem, no matter hopeless it may seem, no matter how it may seem, if circumstances are threatening to stamp out and stifle God's promise and his blessing and his care, God's people are never outside of his care, never outside of his rescue. Exodus declares this loud and clear. It gives us this sure hope. But you know why it also gives us hope? Because Exodus doesn't just point to itself to give us hope. This story in Exodus 1 and 2, as great as it is, as glorious as it is, as much as it puts the faithfulness and power of God on display, actually points to an even greater story. And this greater story turns up the volume on our hope. You see, some 1,500 years later, God's people, again, were in dire circumstances. They were occupied by a foreign power. They were experiencing religious and social and moral oppression under the thumb not only of Rome, but of corrupt religious leaders. They were longing for, crying out for deliverance. And just like God sent Moses, God sends his son, Jesus Christ, 
And just like Moses had a death sentence on his head when he was born, so too did Jesus. And just as God protected Moses, God protected Jesus. And then Jesus, when he entered into ministry as an adult, he continued to face depression. Religious leaders trying to stifle and stamp out his ministry. But you know what? The more they tried to oppose him, the more glorious he became. The more that they tried to shut him up, the more people flocked to him. The more that they tried to outwit and outsmart him, the more his wisdom and authority was put on display. Not what the religious leaders expected. Eventually, Jesus is arrested, though. He is falsely accused, he is tried, and he's sentenced to death. He's mocked, he's spit on, he's beaten, and he's strung up on a cross to die. This is the most shameful, most painful, most humiliating way Rome could kill a person. Now, you can imagine in that moment, the disciples of Jesus were crushed. Wasn't this the Messiah? Wasn't this the one who was going to free us from Rome? Wasn't this the one who was going to bring the kingdom of God to earth? Wasn't this our leader, our Lord, our friend, and now he's dead? And not just dead, they humiliated him and they crushed him. You can imagine the way that that just wrecked and ruined their faith. But friends, appearances can be deceiving. What appeared to be the ultimate victory of evil was actually the ultimate overthrow of evil. See, on the cross, Jesus took our sin and our shame on himself. He stood in our place as the judgment for our sin, and he defeated our sin so that we could be forgiven and set free. On the cross, Jesus took evil's best shot. All the evil rulers and authorities, both spiritual and physical, tried to heap shame onto Jesus. They thought they were shaming Christ. They thought they were defeating Jesus. They thought they had won. But what does Colossians 2 tell us? That on the cross, Jesus disarmed them. Jesus put them to public shame. Jesus triumphed over them. You see, what the, lead, the religious leaders, what Rome, what the evil spiritual forces all thought was the ultimate humiliation and shame and death of Jesus was Jesus' greatest display of his victory and glory. What they thought was going to crush and destroy the movement of the people of God became the very way the people of God were rescued, set freed, and empowered. Friends, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the ultimate display now and forever that God's people are never outside his care, never outside his rescue. Now for us, for us to live in the good of this, we have to not allow experience to deceive us. We have to live and not let listen to the lies that God doesn't care, that God has abandoned us, that he is not listening Friends, we have to not be shaken into believing that the men and spiritual powers in sin and suffering and trial and hardship are more powerful than our God. Let us not listen to the siren song that faith in God isn't worth it. Rather, let's be like the Hebrew midwives. Let's be those that see the power of God is far greater and put our faith there. Let us fear our God, for he is far more powerful and far greater than any spiritual power, any physical power, any man, any institution. 
Let us follow the example of our sisters and fear God and put our faith in him. And yes, until Christ returns, there's going to be hardship. There's going to be trial. There's going to be sin. There's going to be suffering. It is necessary to go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, Acts 14, 22 tells us. If you're expecting something else, I'm sorry to burst your bubble. But this is what Jesus says too. As he tells his disciples in John 16, 33, you will have suffering in this world. Jesus promised it. But be courageous. I have conquered the world. Be courageous. Be strong. Stand in faith. Why? Because Jesus has conquered the world. Don't let your circumstances deceive you. Jesus has won. And friends, here's where the rubber is really going to meet the road for us. That trial, that hardship that you're facing, look, that is going to be the very place where God puts his glory and power on display in your life. Just as it was for Israel, when it got dark, when it got desperate, when it seemed as if God's power and presence were gone or being stifled and stamped out, that's when his power was most put on display. That's when God showed up to show, you're never out of my care. You're never out of my rescue. And so, friend, that trial, that hardship, that is the very place you are going to meet God. God is going to meet you, and his power is going to work, not by removing it, but by meeting you in it and turning it for your good. Now, now look, in in Exodus, Israel begins to grow and multiply. There's physical, tangible benefit there. And that was a unique experience, a unique time. So we're not going to go prosperity gospel here and say God's going to give you all this stuff if you just hold your faith in him. But you better believe God is going to bless you in the midst of trial and hardship. What does Ephesians 1.3 say? He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. In the midst of your trial and your hardship, that is the place where God is going to bless and show his promise and bring his care. He is working in you something far more glorious than just stuff. He's working in you righteousness and goodness and truth. He's turning you into something beautiful, the image of Christ, full of joy and peace and hope and love. God is at work powerfully in your trial, powerfully in your hardship. Yes, it's still painful. Yes, it hurts, and it's gonna hurt until Jesus comes back. But don't lose sight of this truth. Don't let experiences deceive you. You are never outside of the care of God, never outside of his rescue. And what's more, church, what's more, (laughs) where we can see some direct correlation in the growth of Israel in the midst of hardship and trial, guess what? In the midst of hardship and trial and opposition, the church is going to grow. The church, God's people, are going to grow. How is that? By proclaiming the gospel and making disciples. The gates of hell aren't going to stand against this mission. God is advancing his kingdom. People are going to come to know Christ. And sometimes the greatest move of God comes through trial and hardship. It is when it gets dark that God puts his glory on display. People come to know Christ. Yeah, I don't love hardship. I don't love trial. I'm not wishing that on us. But friends, if we come to embrace and hold on to the truth that God's people are never outside his rescue, never outside of his care, we can proclaim the gospel and make disciples in confidence knowing God is going to save and this community is not going to be stamped out. It's going to grow. Praise God. Now, for those of you here this morning that you wouldn't say you have faith, 
maybe, maybe this whole notion of God's promise and blessing and care seems distant to you or just seems like a fairy tale to you, again, I'm glad you're here and I hope you keep coming and listening to this fairy tale. <laughs> it's not a fairy tale, but... <laughs> but here's what I, wanna, I want you to wrestle with. Here's what I want you I want to ask this question. What do you do with the fact that despite every challenge, every hardship, every trial, every attempt to stamp this thing out called the church, it just keeps going. It is spread throughout the world to every tribe, tongue, and language, every culture for thousands and thousands of years. It's not slowing down. It's not stopping. What do you make of this fact that people for over 2,000 years have been proclaiming a crucified and resurrected Savior? If he just died, this thing would have stopped a long time ago. What do you do with that? What do you do with the fact that God has taken what appeared to be the greatest defeat of the people of God and turned it into the greatest victory? And it is still going to this day. I'll encourage you to wrestle with that and keep coming back and listening about how this God saves and redeems. Friends, this world is not going to get any easier. I, I'm not claiming that to be a prophet, but I know it's going to be difficult. And the Bible never sugarcoats life, never sugarcoats life. It's always honest about it. Always very clear and honest that life is hard and painful. But as Exodus shows us, experiences can be deceiving. And rather than letting experiences dictate our lives, let us stand firm in the truth. God's people are never outside his care, never outside his rescue. Let's pray.